I don't plan to speak for more than 30 minutes, so I've just given Mark permission to slap my wrists if I approach anything beyond 30 minutes. Um, I hope you've got the, the handout. I, I, I haven't given them to you to make you feel as if you returned to school. It's just that um, uh, what I say um, is based on your, on your handout. I'm not going to read a text. I'm going to speak to what's on the handout. And it also gives you something to take away and, and perhaps remember some of what I said by. <clears throat> so I, I'm going to begin uh, by describing uh, what I take to be our context and the context for considering issues of justice and war and military intervention. Uh, it was almost 25 years ago, almost quarter of a century ago, that the Cold War ended, or at least the first Cold War. And uh, when that ended in 1989-1990, we all looked forward to a peace dividend. Uh, But what we got instead uh, was a series of uh, small, hot wars. The reason for that is that Uh, During the Cold War, uh, we were constrained, often, uh, from military intervention or action by the fear that any military intervention or action might uh, escalate into full nuclear exchange between NATO and the USSR. With the end of the Cold War, that constraint largely disappeared. So, by by my counting, uh, this country has been at war eight times since 1989. Uh, Bosnia, Kosovo, Sierra Leone, Iraq three times, if you count the current uh, activity in northern Iraq, Afghanistan and Libya. Uh, Since uh, our intervention in Iraq and also in Afghanistan, uh, whose results I would say have been mixed, not simply disastrous in either case, but certainly mixed and also uncertain, mixed and uncertain results. Uh, We've also been engaged in Afghanistan for 10 years. Um, Because of those those two interventions and their mixed and uncertain results and the length of time we've been involved and the costs, uh, we have been suffering from intervention fatigue for the last few years. Um, And because of that, um, in the last few years, there have been voices saying that it's time we uh, dropped any pretensions, any ambitious, over-ambitious pretensions um, um, in the form of liberal imperialism, and that we returned to naked national interest and realpolitik. One symptom of that was the publication in 2009 by... Christopher Mayer, former ambassador to Washington, of a book entitled Getting Our Way. So away from idealistic liberal imperialism back to national interest and realpolitik. And then, of course, in August of last year, we had the famous parliamentary refusal to back the government in joining military operations against the Assad regime. And I noticed in reading uh, the press voices from both left and right uh, expressing a certain amount of satisfaction that at last 
Britain uh, had uh, perhaps begun to um, slough off its post-imperial clinging to the role of global policeman. Since then, of course, uh, what's happened in uh, northern Iraq has begun to suck us back into another intervention, but with manifest reluctance. So that, that I think, is that's what I take to be our our context. Let me now talk a a bit about about the tradition of of thinking about just war, Um, the the moral tradition of of, uh, thinking about the justification of war. And the first thing to say is that this isn't just a Western tradition. Um, uh, You will find analogues in Islamic thinking, particularly during the medieval period, although I suspect that uh, members of Islamic State know nothing whatsoever about it. Um, and uh, when I visited uh, Hong Kong in August of last year, um, attending a conference on war and peace East and West, um, I discovered that um, Confucian thinking, we're talking 500 years BC, and Neo-Confucian thinking 1400 AD um, about justice in war, um, displayed remarkable similarities with the Western Latin Christian tradition. Not identical, but remarkable similarities. And of course, Chinese civilization developed entirely independently of the West until about uh, 1600, 1700. Although uh, one, of, one of my Chinese colleagues at this conference um, uh, has a mission in life to try and persuade the People's Liberation Army to buy back into Confucian ethics. Um, uh, Fifteen months ago, he wasn't having much success. Okay, so just war is not just Christian, but uh, and and uh, nor is it uh, just religious. Uh, in the last um, fifteen years, there's been a remarkable industry in moral philosophy, in non-religious moral philosophy, uh, in this field. Um, So there are a variety of uh, versions of just war thinking. Uh, uh, They have lots of things in common, but they also say different things, and uh, some traditions say more sensible things than others. And in certain respects, uh, I think the Christian tradition, uh, running from Augustine in the early 400s through Aquinas in the 1200s, through the Spanish scholastics in the 1600s, Hugo Grotius in the 1600s to the present day. In some respects, I think the Christian tradition uh, has certain advantages over um, some other versions. I'll mention those presently. Uh, Certainly in the um, Latin Western Christian tradition, um, just war is conceived, uh, perhaps implausibly you might think, as an expression of love. Um, the, pl- the most plausible bit is that um, war is justified in order to defend an innocent neighbor who is being subject to grave injustice. Now that's plausible. The less plausible bit is that, that war is also understood to be an expression of love for the enemy. And as uh, Uh, A a well-known Christian pacifist put it to me on radio a few weeks ago. 
and uh, took all the wind out of my sails. He said, uh, how on earth do you love someone you're killing? Which is a fair question. So, so let's be clear here that, that uh, insofar as just war thinking um, does sanction killing, um, um, if it is an expression of love for the neighbour, it is, it is a tragic expression. Uh, it finds itself in the tragic situation where it can't love one neighbour and defend them without harming another. So this is tragic. It's not ideal. So, um, just cause, and if you look, look in your handouts, you, you'll see um, um, phrases in uh, um, bold italics with numerals after them. Uh, I'm simply indicating some of the classic criteria of a just war. So, so that the most basic criterion of a just war is just cause. And contrary to um, those uh, moral philosophical versions that take their cue from the UN Charter, contrary to that, uh, the paradigm of a just war in Christian tradition is not self-defense. It is the rescue of the innocent, or the defense of the innocent. From a, an intolerably grave injustice. The second criterion is that for a war to be justified, those going to war must intend to rectify the injustice. The point here being that th there may be a grave injustice out there, and we decide to intervene, but we ain't doing it because we care about the innocent. We're doing it because we want the oil, right? So there has to be a match between just cause and right intention. Let's just pause there. Um, just cause is... Um, a case of intolerably grave injustice. What this implies is that some justice is better borne than rectified by war. Because war is, I don't need to persuade you, um, highly destructive and highly unpredictable and not easily controllable. So you don't want to use it except in very grave cases. Uh, what's a grave enough case is something uh, we could uh, we can discuss, and it has been discussed for centuries in the uh, 1500s and 1600s, the kind of case that was reckoned to be worthy of uh, military intervention was uh, the practice of cannibalism or um, uh, um, the practice of mass human sacrifice, thinking of the um, Aztecs in, in Latin America. Um, more recently, of course, the UN Charter says genocide, the uh, responsibility to protect doctrine would have that relaxed to encompass uh, mass atrocity of any kind. Um, so we can discuss what's grave enough. Um, but certainly some forms of injustice are to be borne. Can I give an example? Uh, the one that comes to mind is Northern Ireland, actually. Um, uh, we, we know that uh, uh, Catholic nationalists in Northern Ireland in the 60s and 70s were oppressed through discrimination in uh, uh, the allocation of housing, through uh, employment. Um, so there was a serious injustice there. And we know, of course, that uh, some nationalists, Republican nationalists, took up arms to rectify that. Uh, what reason do we have to suppose that, that was, the taking up of arms was, um, was unwise? What reason do we have to suppose that the injustice might have been tolerated. Well, um, 
the reasons that come to mind are, are two. First of all, at the same time, in the United States, Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement were, uh, were um, um, uh, campaigning in very largely, very largely peaceful ways uh, to, uh, against the oppression of uh, um, African Americans. And to my knowledge, the plight of African Americans was not, um, was not any, uh, the plight of African Americans was probably worse than, than the plight of Catholic nationalists in Northern Ireland. Um, we know that the, the campaign uh, in America was uh, eventually successful. And the other reason for supposing that taking up arms in Northern Ireland was not right is that the vast majority of nationalists, Catholic nationalists, didn't support it. But you know, we, we can argue cases, but that, 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 there's one example I'd give you where I think uh, um, uh, there was injustice, it was a serious injustice, but was not worthy of taking up arms against. Um, something else, so, so third criterion then, we've had just cause, we've had right intention, third criterion is last resort. Uh, if there are peaceful means, if there are realistically peaceful means of resolving uh, um, a case of, grace, of grave injustice, those are to be preferred. Um, please note that just war is not holy war. It is not holy war. Uh, it does not aim, aim to cleanse the world of evil. Um, it is uh, more like an analogue of police action uh, performed by one set of sinners uh, to um, curb a particular manifestation of wrongdoing by, by another set. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a modest action in that sense. Um, just war is definitely not the kind of war that Islamic State is waging against infidels. It can't be that kind. Um, certainly from a Christian point of view, you cannot regard the enemy uh, as uh, anything other than a fellow sinner. And that is itself a constraint on what you can do to them and the reasons for doing it. Okay, let me go on to talk about uh, international law. I've mentioned, um, I've hinted that there is a, a tension between um, the Christian tradition of just war thinking and the UN Charter, uh, so that those versions of just war that take their cue from the Charter tend to think that, that self-defense is, the, is the, uh, the paradigm of just war, uh, whereas in Christian tradition it's not. It's the rescue of the innocent. <coughs> And that rescue can be defensive or aggressive. So there is some tension here. Um, I'm not a lawyer. I'm certainly not an international lawyer. And I fear some of you may be. Um, uh, but uh, such research as I've done has taught me that, first of all, there is controversy among international lawyers as to what international law is. Is it just, is it just treaty law? Is it just the UN Charter? Or can treaty law be qualified by appeal to customary law or state practice? <coughs> international lawyers dispute amongst themselves as to what the correct interpretation of international law is. Um, and certainly the tension between um, the Christian tradition and international law is greatest if you understand international law simply to be treaty law. Uh, because according to, to treaty law, Unless the, the UN Security Council gives its authorization, um, humanitarian intervention is forbidden. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter what's happening on the other side of the border. It doesn't matter if 
another Hitler is doing another genocide, if the UN Security Council refuses to, uh, to give its, its authorization, you cannot intervene legally. Um, if, however, you, you appeal to customary law, uh, you might be able to mount uh, a decent legal argument for intervention, even without UN Security Council authorization, but it's highly controversial. Um, you'll even find, though rarely, uh, international law is appealing not just to statutory law, treaty law, or customary law, but also to moral law. It's rare, because lawyers don't like to appeal to moral law because it is uh, vaguer and because its uh, universal authority is more uncertain. But, for example, uh, according to uh, one Finnish international lawyer, um, most international lawyers regard the 1999 intervention by NATO in Kosovo as at once illegal, but legitimate, morally legitimate. So uh, uh, there, there, are, there are tensions here between moral tradition and, and the law. How much tension depends on what construal of the law you're making. Uh, an attempt to, to uh, an important attempt to, to narrow the gap has been made uh, by uh, those who support the doctrine of the responsibility to protect, which emanated from a, a Canadian commission. Um, um, but which has not been uh, uh, fully accepted by the UN. So it, its status is, is uncertain at the moment. But the responsibility to protect, uh, it seems to me, um, consciously or unconsciously, directly reflects the Christian tradition, according to which um, the paradigm of just war is intervention to save the innocent. OK, in, enough on, on um, international law. Um, let me now talk about national interest. And, and here, as far as I know, I, I'm not... These are my own thoughts. I, I've not found them uh, um, elsewhere in, the, in, in any tradition of just war thinking. And what I want to argue is we need to stop thinking of morality and national interest as being opposed. They can be. They don't have to be. Uh, we tend to think that they are because, because uh, um, in international affairs, we, we, we tend to become Kantians. So, so what's moral is what is purely altruistic, and, and any taint of self-interest is as such immoral. Well, if you're a Kantian, that's what you think. Uh, but um, there are other moral traditions, and my own preferred one uh, stems from Thomas Aquinas who was influenced himself by Aristotle, uh, as well as the Bible. So uh, Aristotle says that uh, self-preservation uh, is, is natural. We all, have a, a na all beings have a natural inclination to, to preserve themselves. Um, OK, what's natural isn't necessarily moral, but then comes along uh, the Bible with the, uh, the first book, uh, Genesis, which tells us that God created the world and he tells us seven times. He stood back and God said, and behold, it was good. The world is good. What's good is valuable. What's valuable deserves care. Part of the world, part of the created world, are human beings. Human beings are valuable. Human beings deserve care. 
we have a duty of care to ourselves. And as we have a duty of care to individuals, so we have a duty of care to groups of individuals, even nations. Governments have a moral duty of care to serve the real interests of their people. And uh, in case you're wondering if that's sub-Christian, remember that when Jesus urged us to love our neighbor, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. There are legitimate interests. Um, not every interest is legitimate. Um, and uh, even our pursuit of legitimate interests should be constrained by our duty to respect the rights of others. But provided we do respect those rights, and provided the interests are in themselves legitimate, there's nothing wrong with them. So, next time uh, someone in the press uh, complains that because national interest is involved in some bit of foreign policy, um, and therefore that foreign bit of foreign policy is um, suspect, please question the assumptions. Which interest, and what's wrong with it? Um, I, I raise national interest because when it comes to, to military intervention, especially in remote parts of the world, uh, national interest has to be involved because it seems to me to be perfectly reasonable for uh, people in this country to ask why it is that their uniformed daughters and sons and brothers and sisters and parents, why us? Why us there? It's perfectly reasonable. Uh, um, why not the Belgians or why not the Chinese? Why us there? And the answer has to come in, in, in the form of some kind of national interest. Um, but before you think about national interest as being something grubby and ignoble, it seems to me that um, one of our national interests is, is moral integrity. Most members of most nations, seems to me, want to believe that their nation does the right thing. Um, and that alone will sustain a certain amount of foreign intervention, um, so long as it doesn't cost too much. So uh, we didn't intervene in Sierra Leone in 2000 to stop uh, drug-crazed, limb-chopping, diamond-hungry rebels from taking control of the government. It cost us one British casualty, um, and it was a good thing to do. And uh, I've never heard any Britons say that they were disturbed by that or ashamed of it, indeed the opposite. However, when it comes to um, um, military intervention for humanitarian purposes in remote parts of the world, um, our interest in moral integrity alone will not sustain political support. Uh, Yes, we do care about be doing the right thing as well as being safe and fat, um, but uh, there are limits to the kind of costs we're willing to, to pay. So it seems to me that when it comes to um, more costly, uh, more remote, more long-lasting interventions, interests like national security have to be engaged. Have to be engaged. And part of the trouble with Afghanistan is that at least after about 2006, our involvement there, the, the extent to which it really engaged national security interests wasn't clear. 
I mean, it, it might have engaged them, but only remotely or indirectly, which made it difficult to support political, uh, to, to, to maintain political support. Uh, I'll talk about Syria uh, again in a moment, uh, but um, it seems to me that uh, uh, whilst very nasty things were going on in Syria since 2011, and we all lamented them, uh, uh, and while I was inclined to think we should have got involved, um, I understand why we didn't. Uh, partly because um, our own national interest was not directly engaged. However, suppose that Syria were in fact geographically located where France is. It would have made much more sense for us to pay much higher costs and take much higher risks because our national security would have been much more directly involved. And that's not a criticism. I, I think it's, it's not unreasonable. Next, proportionality. So uh, a, a, fourth, a fifth criterion uh, is that when going to war, um, there has to be some kind of proportion between going to war and the end you're going to achieve. And under five, this is, this is perplexing uh, and complicated, um, um, but, but there are about four different meanings of proportionality, and I've listed them there. The, the, the one that um, comes most obviously to mind is, is some kind of calculation of costs and benefits. The notion that before we go to war, uh, we should be sure, and people then do talk about ensuring, in, we should ensure that um, the benefits will outweigh the costs. Um, th there are problems with that. I mean, insuperable problems. <coughs> One is, we can't ensure. We don't have control over the consequences. We don't, we don't know what the consequences are going to be long term. An even bigger problem is, um, talking about weighing, weighing up costs and benefits. You can only weigh up something sensibly that is of the same kind. Uh, uh, take a familiar example. Uh, regime change in 1945 in Berlin um, had these effects. On the one hand, um, an, end, an end to the Holocaust, an end to the enslavement of parts of Europe. Um, and, and probably a list of other good things. That, that was all very good. On the other hand, uh, the cost of defeating Hitler was 80 million dead. The cost of breaking Hitler on the, on the Eastern Front, probably up to 2 million German women raped. And of course, we ended up having to hand over half of Eastern Europe to the tender mercies of Stalin. How do you weigh those together and tell me which weighed more? There's no way of doing it. I'll talk about costs and benefits and weighing up the pros and cons um, gives us a spurious sense of quantitative security. Um, but actually, much of the time, all we're doing is rationalizing prejudice or intuition. I don't think that works much of the time. More sensible uh, uh, um, ideas of proportionality might be aptness. The aptness of 
military means to political ends. So here's an example I came up with uh, in a letter I wrote to the Times earlier this year uh, in response to um, uh, Israel's protective edge operations in Gaza. Um, right, so, so Israel was attacked by rockets from Gaza. Fair enough to defend itself. But of course, uh, Israel's uh, Iron Dome def missile defense system was about 95% effective. So not, not many of the missiles got through. So what, what, was, the, what was the need to intervene in, in, uh, in Gaza? Well, of course, you want to, you want to um, get at the cause of the missiles. Um, but then I thought to myself, um, the, the cause of the missiles, um, the causes are not simply terrorists, the causes are political. So if you really want to, to address the problem, you don't just uh, use military means, you have to use political means as well. Um, at very least, in my view, you have to stop supporting the expansion of the settlements, at least. So my judgment in that case was that the, the military means alone were not apt. The lack of the coordination of military efforts with political ones meant that in that case, Israel's um, reaction through military uh, means was disproportionate because it wasn't apt. You might disagree with the case, but you see the idea, aptness of means to ends. Uh, military means themselves are, uh, alone are often not apt because alone they won't do the job. Uh, a third notion of proportionality is, is counterproductivity, uh, non-counterproductivity. So if the aim in Afghanistan is to um, win hearts and minds, then if you use means that kill lots of civilians, it's counterproductive and in that sense disproportionate. Okay, fine. Then I'll, I'll, I'll move straight to, to point six. The question of, of Britain's role as a global policeman. Um, first of all, let, let, let's be modest here. Uh, no one is suggesting that Britain should be the world's only global policeman. Uh, even at the height of our imperial power around the turn of the 19th century, um, there was lots we couldn't achieve. We, we managed to win a war in South Africa. We still couldn't impose our will in South Africa. Um, so if we're talking about Britain being a global policeman, it's not alone. It's got to be with other people. Um, but I, I do uh, um, think we need to have uh, moral self-confidence. Uh, if um, gross injustice, if uh, mass beheadings if the enslavement of women is not acceptable here among us, then it is not acceptable anywhere, unless people elsewhere are not our equals. If, if Arabs and, and Africans uh, uh, aren't our equals, uh, then maybe, maybe it's fair for them to put up with slavery and mass beheadings. But if we think them equal, uh, we can't accept that what is not acceptable here is, is acceptable there. Uh, at, least in, at least in the case of, of very grave injustice. Um, 
And that's, of course, what, uh, what uh, fueled our 19th century campaigns against uh, the Atlantic slave trade. Um, we also need, I think, to, to have uh, a certain measure of integrity in that um, um, if we accept that sometimes the innocent need rescuing by military means, and sometimes they do, uh, then if that's true, then uh, why would we leave it to other people to do it? We may not be able to do it alone, but why wouldn't we play a part? I think, I think there's a, I guess, reflecting on some countries, it seems to me there's a lack of integrity. Um, uh, there's either a pretense that military means are never appropriate or never needed, or um, if there isn't a pretense, there's a notion that someone else should do it. And it seems to me to be lacking in integrity. But finally, it seems to me that so long as, uh, as this country wishes to retain a seat on the UN Security Council among the permanent five, we have to be willing uh, to use military force beyond the service of narrowly private national interest. We have to be willing to use military force uh, in the service of international public interests. Uh, because if we're not willing to do that, we shouldn't be on the, among the permanent five of the Security Council. And, that, and now it may well be that, that other members of the Security Council um, uh, don't recognize their public responsibility. That's, that's their business. I think we should. I'm out of time. I was going to talk about Islamic State. Oh, do. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was hoping you'd say that. Uh, uh, Okay, just, just very briefly, um, it seemed to me that, and I can go into the details if you wish, the, the original, just going back to Syria, the, the original rebellion in 2011 in Syria and its resort to force of arms I think was justified, <coughs> originally. Uh, I'm told by um, 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 people who ought to know these things that probably there was little we could have done to have aided the rebellion then. But of course, what, what it makes sense for us to do um, depends partly on how engaged our national interest is. Um, whatever the truth then, it seems to me that our national interest is more engaged now. Um, not only uh, our national interest in, 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 in moral integrity. It's not good that Yazidis and Kurds are being beheaded or Iraqi prisoners of wars are being slaughtered in, in their hundreds, uh, that should stop. In addition to that, uh, of course, uh, uh, as part of the West, uh, um, this country is the declared enemy of Islamic State. What is more Islamic State, I believe, now have considerable financial resources and, and other resources. And then I add to that the fact that several hundred of our own citizens um, are fighting for them. Uh, and it is quite possible there will be traffic back uh, to this country, uh, perhaps aided by uh, the considerable resources that Islamic State have. So the point is that unlike 2011, uh, I think our national interest in security is more engaged um, and might warrant, therefore, uh, um, um, greater expenditure and the taking of greater risks. I'll stop there. So we, we have...